You're listening to This Week in Fantasy Baseball. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Fantasy Baseball. I'm Lee Keller, joined by John Kuh. On this off-season episode of This Week in Fantasy Baseball, we have an interview with pitcherless writer Jake Crumpler. But before we get into that, John, how's everything going with you? It's been going well. Uh, beginning of the year, just uh, getting all situated in the new year, I guess, and uh, getting excited for baseball. Uh, we've got PitchCon coming up with Pitchless, so that's our kind of annual baseball conference sort of thing that's coming up i think at the end of this month and i feel like that's kind of the official start to the fantasy baseball season i know people already talk about mock drafts in the pitchless discord i'm like feels a little early for that but i mean i guess in what two months pitchers and catchers report right so in a month in a month yeah geez that's so soon um yeah it feels crazy that that everything is coming to ahead so quickly but yeah baseball is uh is coming and it's coming quick yeah, what's crazy is it's not too far off. I mean, just today, Yahoo opened up their site. I know ESPN opened up a few days ago, so leagues are forming. Mock drafts are able to be had, so it's an exciting time. I mean, I really feel like this time for fantasy baseball is like the beginning of the season because mm-hmm. I just signed up for TGFBI again. I yep, am same. ready for the pitcher list, everything to go down. Like, I am just excited about all things fantasy baseball. Now it really starts hitting you. Like, I started doing prep for my home league, like doing all the commissioner work and getting all the rule changes in place and breathe in the air of the fantasy season. You know, it's nothing like that when everything starts hitting you at once. You're seeing rankings pop up, you're seeing articles mm-hmm. pop up. It's just all getting back into the swing of things. Yeah, I know, I know my dynasty league, we're starting our first year player draft this upcoming Monday. So yeah, oh. then, like, I'll, I'll actually be drafting for real <laughs> this upcoming week. So it's, uh, that's a little scary. But I mean, the nice part about this part of the season, right, is that you can't really make a mistake. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's very true. Do you, you know what pick the, you have for the first year player draft? I traded to the fifth pick. Okay. Okay. So, so I mean, I mean, I know a bunch of the guys who uh, are on that league are pitchless guys, but hopefully they're not listening to this part of the podcast if they are listeners. Uh, I'm really hoping Walker Jenkins falls to me uh, as the Twins guy. I mean, okay. That would be sick. But, um, you know, I'll just take whoever shows up at, at pick five. Um, I, have a, I have a decent idea of, like, who are the who are the guys I want. And I'd, I'd, I'd rather have a more impact guy rather than, you know, drafting a 19-year-old and, and waiting for him to, to pan out in two, three years. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see who falls to me. Maybe it's uh, Maybe something weird happens and I – luck into Wyatt Langford or something like that that'd be fantastic I mean the big five I think this year I mean there's a big seven kind of this year you have obviously Yoshinobu Yamamoto is the big one like that's the main guy you want then Wyatt Langford you have Dylan Cruz who I managed to get in my first year player draft I had the third pick and I missed out on the first two names I mentioned then you have Walker Jenkins you have Max Clark you have Paul Skeens so there's you know options you have options there it's a lot of good players that you can really rely on for top prospect pedigree. So hopefully that goes well with you. I just did my first year player draft in my dynasty league like last month we did it. So I've been drafting mm-hmm. for a while. I've been slowly getting into the mindset, but fantasy baseball is here and the podcast will continue ramping up. But now joining us on the podcast to talk about his latest article, hot second half hitters who deserve your attention is pitcherless writer, Jake Crumpler. Jake, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on once again. Uh, always 
happy to join you guys. Of course. I'm very excited to talk about your latest article because this one is something that we're kind of doing this offseason is talking about people who kind of deserve your attention that maybe you waned off of at the end of last season where you weren't paying attention and you didn't realize that these players were performing well just to get people ready for drafts upcoming this season. So let's get it started by talking about the first person that you spoke about in the article, and that's Tristan Casas. His season-long metrics actually didn't look too bad, finishing in the top 50 of qualified batters in OBP and slug. However, looking at just his second-half stats, which most people probably didn't pay attention to later on in the season if they were out of it, he had an OPS over 1,000 along with a 175 WRC+. As you mentioned in the article, the 2024 projections are a bit muted and kind of reserved on him, and they're more in line with his 2023 season. One thing you point to is Casas' improvement in his ability to hit to all fields. So what is something else that might be helpful to look at in Casas' spring to give us hope he might hit that ceiling of hitting 280 with 30-plus homers? Because me personally, I'm pretty high on Tristan Casas. I think he had a good season overall last year, and I think he's going to be a good target depending on where he goes in drafts, of course. But I feel like he's being a little slept on. So what do you think about Tristan Casas? What could we look at to believe in his second-half surge? Yeah, I think in spring, it's always difficult to sort of look at stats and figure out whether a player is going to carry over what they had going throughout the entire season or even specifically in this case in the second half. Um, but I, I think it's important to maybe watch some games and make sure you see him hitting the ball all over the field because there's not too many stats, uh, advanced stats that you can pull from those minor league stadiums in Arizona, or I guess that's in Florida for a Red Sox player. But either way, I think watching games and making sure he's got that same approach. But I think more importantly, a guy like this who we're hoping to have a higher batting average floor and ceiling is making sure that he's making more contact because we saw last year in the second half the improvement of his plate discipline metrics from the first half to the second half. We saw his walk rate increase by half a percent, but his strikeout rate decreased by uh, over two and a half percent. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing is seeing that he doesn't strike out a lot. Um, but the sample sizes are so small that it's really hard to buy into stuff. Luckily, strikeout rate and walk rate are some of the quickest stabilizing stats uh, amongst advanced metrics. So those are ones that you can sort of trust pretty quickly. So if we're three, four weeks into spring training, towards the end of spring training, which might be outside of some people's drafts, and he's striking out at a rate that you can feel comfortable with, you know, low 20s, I would think that he's probably going to continue what he did in the second half last year. Um, but yeah, that's, that's probably what I'll be looking at is making sure that he's hitting the ball all, all over the field and making a lot of contact. Yeah. Casas's numbers looked all right at the surface level for 2023. I mean, 24 homers, 263 average, 367 OBP, 490 slug, all pretty just basic standard stuff that wouldn't make you think, oh man, I really want him as my starting first baseman. But if you really look under the hood, I mean, 86th percentile in barrel percentage, he had 89th percentile in expected slug and 92nd percentile in ex-woba. And that walk rate, once again, is really good. So in OBP leagues, maybe points leagues, Casas will be better overall. But I just think Casas has that really high prospect pedigree that can't be slept on that you have to remember that this guy is a unit and I think he's going to hit over 30 homers next season and really hit that mm -hmm. ceiling that we mentioned before I really like Casas going into this year 
Yeah, and even uh, you mentioned the projections for next year. Right now we just have steamer projections. I'm sure everyone is w anxiously waiting for ATC and the Bad X to come yep. out because those are the ones we uh, trust the most. But even if we consider his projections next year muted, he's projected by Seamer for a 259 average and 29 home runs. And there's only seven first basemen that are projected to hit uh, at least 259 with 26 or more home runs. And those guys are Matt Olson, Vlad Jr., Bryce Harper, Paul Goldschmidt, Freddie Freeman, and surprisingly, Andrew Vaughn as well. But that really? list also includes Cass. Yeah, um, that's a tweet by Frank Amarante, um, F Amarante, TFJ on Twitter. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting that even if he's going to hit more so like he did for his full season line, he'll still be a top seven first baseman in baseball next year. I'm actually shocked that Christian Walker's not on that list. Why would they disrespect my boy like that? What is going on? <laughs> it's it's probably a, a batting average thing. I'd be interested to uh, figure out what the projections are. I'm Same pulling with that up Pete right Alonso. now. It looks like he's, proje he's projected for 256 and 29 home runs, so he doesn't meet the batting average criteria. Okay, what's Alonzo projected for, for the batting average? Look, I would assume uh, Alonzo was really unlucky last year in terms yeah. of BABIP. He batted just 217, yeah. but it was a 205 BABIP. Next year, they project him for batting 250, which is right in line with his career average. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that sort of makes sense, but I could, I could see some upside there. We've seen him bat 270 before. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I was a little bit perturbed by seeing this list and not seeing Pete Alonzo and Christian Walker, but I guess yeah. the batting average just falls short, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's what makes Casas so interesting, right, is because he's not just kind of a power guy, right? He's got the ability to hit for average, and um, I mean, a lot of these guys are also going to be really solid OBP contributors too, um, but he does have that elite eye, you know, that Walker was really good last year top 10 in the league, I think, um, or at least really high. So um, that's what kind of makes him maybe a little bit more interesting when you're looking at a little bit more of the comparing him against, let's just say, Andrew Vaughn or um, Christian Walker, uh, you know, those guys where it's like, you know, they're, they're kind of cracking through the top five of first baseman, um, and you're trying to figure out, you know, where can you get a little bit more value? I think Casas definitely offers that, at least in the batting average and OBP categories. Absolutely. Yeah, well, the moving on, uh, the second hitter you highlighted was Jake Berger, who, uh, I'll be completely honest, I didn't know existed uh, until last season, um, and, which is kind of shocking because he you know, was playing for the White Sox, and obviously they're in my my uh, home team's division with the Twins. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the interesting thing with Berger was, you know, obviously a huge power hitter, uh, eventually got traded to the Marlins, and... I kind of mentioned there was an interesting change in his approach at the plate that wasn't necessarily in line with his trade to the Marlins, but kind of just happened around the same time. So um, maybe there's there's something worth looking into that. But he basically moved from kind of a only focusing on power hitter to being more contact oriented. Uh, you know, some of the stats that you brought up were that his his strikeout rate went down as the season went on. Um, his decision-making on swings were improving throughout the season. That's, you know, something that we get to see in our um, our PLV hitters um, app that's available on PitcherList. Um, all those things, though, you know, are, are really cool to see. But what advanced metrics ultimately help support that um, beyond just seeing, like, oh, his numbers, his average went up or his strikeout rate went down? You know, what, what are some things that you saw that kind of make you believe that this contact-oriented approach is maybe something that's here to stay for Berger? Yeah, I think with most situations like this, you want to look at 
contact rates and and swing strike rates. I think that's the best way to go about this. And I, I'm going to give full credit to Scott Chu on this one because while it was pretty obvious what kind of how he changed as a as a hitter from one team to the other in that, like you said, he went from being a all or nothing power hitter to a guy that was batting over 300 with mm-hmm. the Marlins, which is not, it, it, that's a, that's a pretty significant change. Um, but I, I think it's important to note that the change was sort of cooking before he was traded over there because like you said, his strikeout rate was improving throughout the whole season and the decision-making I think is the biggest thing. Uh, so, so those PLV metrics you mentioned were super important in being able to visualize this and that his decision-making on both fastballs and breaking balls improved throughout the year up to the point where he was one of the best decision-makers on swings against breaking balls. So that was super important. But we see that in the second half, uh, which he still played a little bit with the White Sox. I think there was two weeks there where he played with the White Sox. Mm-hmm. His right. contact rate was pretty solid at 70%, but his own contact rate was up at 85.5%, which is very good. And I, I think he was just making much better swings. There's probably going to still be a little bit of swing and miss in his profile because he's a guy that is swinging for the fences <clears throat> and he doesn't walk a lot. So he's swinging quite a bit if pitchers are going to attack him out of the zone he's going to have to continue to maintain those good decisions on swings if he wants to maintain a strikeout rate that low but the 10 percent difference between a strikeout rate with the white Sox and the marlins is just so incredible that you, you sort of have to uh credit that as the the, the biggest factor there but yeah overall his, his swing strike rate dropped from one team to the other uh contact rate rose zone contact rate rose uh, O contact rose. Uh, so it was just across the board that he was making more contact. And as I mentioned in the article, he was still a guy that was barreling the ball often, even while making this change in approach to becoming a more contact oriented hitter in that he was still barreling the ball over 14% of the time, which would have placed him in the top 30 in all of baseball for full season amongst qualified hitters. So I, I still think even if he is maintaining the approach he had in the second half last year, he could still be a guy that hits 30 home runs. And so that makes me super excited that he's at the very least got a floor of a batting 250 with 25 home runs and with a ceiling of batting like 275 with 35 or more home runs. Right. It's interesting, too, because you look at his season average last year, it was it was 250. Right. And that is kind of taking into account the the poor or not the poor, but basically just the lower average that he had in the first half of the season. And then the the better average right in in the second half of the season, 279 and in in those second half stats. And so just imagining if that kind of continues. Yeah, you can see where, you know, those projections of like being a 275 hitter um, starts to make a little bit more sense, even though, you know, his 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 season stats for the last couple seasons have been kind of hovering more around that 250, 260 range. And um, I think you have a very interesting comp here of having him as kind of the next Max Muncy. Uh, and I'm kind of interested to hear, you know, what do you think makes him more interesting than Muncy even next season? Like, you know, considering that right now he's kind of going in the drafts, like just a few picks after, after Muncy, what, what makes him more of an interesting pickup, I guess, in drafts than, than Muncy, in your opinion. Sure. So the reason I compared him to Max Muncy in the past was first off because when I did the pitcherless mock draft a couple months ago, I drafted Muncy and I really regretted it because Jake Berger went shortly after to uh, my co-host Rick Graham 
and I really felt like Berger was had a higher ceiling than Muncie, which is seems a bit controversial considering what Muncie has done in the past, but I think it's all in that average department, and we saw it in the second half last year. So I think what Berger provides right now as a floor is what Muncie was doing the past few years in that he's a guy who's not going to hurt you in the batting average department and can provide 30 home run power. But what makes him better than Muncie now is that he's got that batting average ceiling and Muncie has become sort of a batting average detriment as he batted very low last year. I think it was close to 200. So while Berger is likely to be lacking in the run production numbers, runs and RBI, while Muncie is probably going to be a boon in that department playing on a team that's really loaded in the Dodgers. I I think Berger's production in that. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, um, I, I think Berger's production in the average department is going to outweigh whatever he's lacking in the run production department, and that's going to make him really interesting. And I, I think he's honestly really close to what Alex Bregman and Nolan Arenado are projected mm-hmm. for next year. And that, like last year, they were 265 batters with 30 home runs, and that really seems within like the 50th percentile of what we're expecting from Berger. Yeah, yeah. that's something I wanted to touch on specifically in your article is that you shared the steamer projections of which is 249 and 27 homers for Berger and how you compare that to Bregman and Arenado's projections. And that's pretty shocking when you look at it, but it makes sense. Like I know Arenado's price is already dipping in drafts this season. Like I remember last year I paid, I think third or fourth round value for him because he was valued as a 35 homer, hundred RBI, 260, 270 batting average guy, you know, normal Nolan Arenado. But after the season he had last year and kind of what he's been doing lately, the trend, how it's going, he's very similar to Jake Berger and Arnado is still going higher than him despite his price dropping overall. So is there anything more you could add to that and that kind of comp? Because I think, once again, in OBP leagues, Max Muncy is still someone I draft over Jake Berger. In an average league, I think Berger has more upside. I think you're right on that. But for standard leagues, I mean, you could argue that Jake Berger shouldn't go more than 10 picks after Nolan Arenado. Yeah, that's totally fair. I think the reason Arenado is likely to go over and why I would likely draft him over is because their 50th percentile outcomes are likely pretty similar in that 260 range with 30 home runs. But Arenado's going to probably outproduce in the run production numbers. And he's got that longevity factor in that we've seen him do it for a long time. But I mean, even in an OBP league with Muncie versus Berger, I think it could be pretty close. We saw Berger post a 355 OBP in the second half, while Muncie had a 333 OBP for the whole season. So it could be a lot closer than we imagine, just because Muncie is not making a lot of contact. But yeah, it's pretty crazy that he's Berger's going so late and around pick 160, I think it was, and the guys that I would compare them closest to Bregman and Arenado are going around pick 100. So you're getting a pretty large discount there. Um, and I would push pretty hard to get him even as my starting third baseman. Yeah, because the one thing is obviously that track record, right? Like Jake Berger did this for half of a season where we're like, oh man, you know, this mm-hmm. is substantial. But Muncie has a 350 career OBP, you know, Arenado and Bregman have put years of consistent numbers up. So you're really paying for that track record. But It might just be the time where it flips and Jake Berger's the right move now, you know? Yeah. All right. Now, before we get into the next player that you wrote about, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be back after this. 
All right, Lee, I know it's the new year. We're both probably really busy with life stuff right now. And we both also have New Year's resolutions that we'd like to get to. After all, we just talked about fantasy baseball resolutions last week. Well, our sponsor, Factor, would like to help our listeners get ready for the new year as well. Their ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. You can skip the grocery stores, prep work, and cooking fatigue, and instead get chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. You can skip the overpriced takeout trap. Factor is cheaper and way more delicious than takeout. You can get chef-crafted, restaurant-quality meals delivered right to your door, and they're ready to heat and eat in just in two minutes, which means more time for you. You can head to factormeals.com slash TWFB50 and use code TWFB50 to get 50% off. That's code TWFB50 at factormeals.com slash TWFB50 to get 50% off. Moving on to the third player that you talked about, Cabrian Hayes. Now, he seems to always tempt fantasy managers with top 10 third base potential, but never seems to get there. I feel like he's always drafted, not high, I would say, but in the middle of the draft where people take a shot on him and really expect him to break out and this be the year, but it just never really happens. However, last season he did show some promise in the second half with an 874 OPS and a 129 WRC+. Counting stats-wise, he added 10 homers and 29 RBI. More impressively, his contact stats were elite last season, finishing top 10 in both IPA percentage and HC percentage. Since this isn't your first time writing about Cabrian Hayes, what do you like about him so much, other than he won his gold glove over Nolan Arenado last year, that makes you think he's a solid pickup in drafts for next season? Yeah, I've been very enamored by Hayes for the entirety of his career, and I, <laughs> like many other fantasy managers, were was super excited for him to break out at some point, and it sort of seemed like it was going to be a lost cause. We've seen guys hit the ball on the ground too often and never really tap into their power potential, but we finally saw Hayes do that last year, and you mentioned 10 home runs in the second half. That by itself was a career high, which is pretty crazy. Crazy, um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. I, I did write about him earlier this year in August when I was witnessing him finally breaking out. I guess the whole fantasy and baseball industry was witnessing him breaking out as he finally started hitting balls over the wall. So I did a, a deep dive on just how he got there. And I compared him very closely to Vlad Jr. and Yandy Diaz, both guys that are pretty famous for hitting the ball on the ground and really not being able to tap into their power potential, and then finally flipping the switch and turning that on. We saw Vlad Jr. do that uh, and have an MVP caliber season, and we saw Yanni Diaz do that in the first half of last season and reach 20 home runs, which is something that we never thought possible. Uh, And I think Hayes is in that same boat where this was a guy where he had such a clear problem in that he hit the ball on the ground too much. And so it just takes that that one change of just seeing him hit the ball in the air. And you can sort of see that it's similar to Jake Berger as well in that he had made the change early on in the 2023 season and that he was hitting the ball in the air early on in 2023. But his stats didn't really reflect the change that he was making. His advanced stats did. The, uh, the surface level stats did not. He was not hitting a lot of home runs. And then as soon as we hit the all-star break, this was 
you know, when people start to look at guys that could possibly break out in the second half, Cabrian was probably one of those if people were really doing their deep dives well. But then he got injured and he didn't return until early August. And that's when he started to, to turn things on and he started to hit the ball in the air. He maintained his hard hit rate and everything turned around. He started hit, he started to pull the ball more too, which is usually a signifier of a guy that can tap into more power. Um, so just seeing that he was able to do everything that we wanted him to do in terms of hitting the ball in the air, pulling it, maintaining his hard hit numbers, and obviously continuing to play gold glove caliber defense at third base to maintain his spot in the lineup was just, you know, it was everything was just so perfect. It was, it was the, the perfect recipe for a guy to break out. And I have the feeling that that's just going to be the appetizer for a main course in 2024 where he's an all-star. Yeah, I mean, you make a strong case for him. And I think the one true selling point on Cabrian Hayes is that he had 20 stolen bases in 2022. He had 10 stolen bases in 2023. Most third basemen, give or take, depending on where you have these players and what their eligibility are, like Ellie De La Cruz, who's third base eligible, who can steal a bunch of bases. Joe Ram, Bobby Witt might have third base eligibility on some sites. But besides those few names I just said, there's not really people stealing bases for you at third base. So if he can give you that really good power potential with hitting, I don't know, 20 to 25 homers and giving you 20 to 25 steals, that's quintessential Joe Ram almost. So he could give you something very unique in fantasy that most third basemen can't give you. So I think this is a very interesting player to take a stab on deep in your drafts and Hope for that breakout because he's got the profile. Like you said, I mean, we mentioned that in which IPA percentage for people that when I mentioned before, it stands for ideal plate appearance. He was ranked eighth. I mean, it 32.4% in ideal plate appearance percentage is just bonkers. So the fact that he's having good at bats and he's able to just have that surge in homers like he did at the end of the season and put all this together, plus the potential of stolen bases. He just seems so intriguing to break out fully in 2024. Yeah, the uniqueness of his profile is definitely something that draws me to him, especially at that third base position where you're not going to find many stolen bases after the top tier of those third basemen. But that on top of his potential and just the fact that if he can stay healthy, he's going to be in the lineup every single day. So I'm super pumped to see what Cabrian can do. And right now, the the draft price isn't super high. I think his ADP was at around 164, so basically the same area that Jake Berger was going. And so I think at that point in the draft, it's really going to come up to team needs, whether you want to value stolen bases or home runs. But yeah, both Cabrian and, and Jake Berger being in that area makes it a really fun spot to take a third baseman. Yeah, definitely... Uh... One of the interesting things about his stats, I think, was that in 2022, his average launch angle was 5.7 degrees, and 2023, 13.1, which, I mean, granted, it doesn't describe all of the balls that he's hitting, right? It's still an average at the end of the day, but the fact that the average is higher, I think, is just a, a little bit of uh, evidence that something's working in his swing, and, um, you know, bringing that ground ball, down, ground ball rate down by 10%, bringing the fly ball rate up by 8%. Um, those are all just, you know, very good numbers to see in terms of having, instead of hoping that Hayes is able to kind of lift the ball a little bit more and, and kind of let that hard contact generate more, uh, more offense rather than just hitting balls straight into the ground. The last guy I want to talk about in your article is someone that I know decently well, having watched many of his games, but Max Kepler, um, 
you know, I think with him, everyone points to the 2019 season, the rabbit ball season where uh, he hit over 30 home runs. Um, and it just feels like pretty much all managers ever since then have been chasing that success, uh, but really just haven't found it from Kepler. He's he's definitely a serviceable hitter. He's not he's not a terrible player by any means, but he's really failed to reach those levels that he, he reached in 2019. So other than just like a good, you know, second half last season where he was slashing 306, 377, 5. 49 had 12 homers um you know really good walk rate 10.2 percent uh only a 20 percent strikeout rate 154 wrc plus so just beyond those stats right what are other metrics that you indicate that this type of success in the second half of the season has a chance to continue going into 2024 it's a very rudimentary stat but i think the biggest one is babip and Mm -hmm. that can be a stat that's difficult to trust especially from season to season but i think with the rule changes uh specifically the one shifting or limiting the shifting that's going to be super key for him because his BABIP in the second half was nearly 50 points higher than it had been from 2018 to 2022 and i i think that that tells you everything he, he's not really a guy that hits the ball on the ground too much and he doesn't pull the ball as much as some other guys i compared him a little bit to isak Predis in that Predis is a guy who hits the ball in the air basically as much as possible and pulls the ball as much as possible. And he's not really that extreme, but guys like that can find a lot of power. And I think Kepler's going to be a guy who finds more batting average going forward because we saw his batting averages limited because teams were able to shift against him and really limit the hits that he gets on balls pulled to the right side of the field. And so I think going forward, he's just going to have a lot more luck on balls in play because you're not going to see the third baseman in shallow right field and the the shortstop uh, to the right of second base. And he's just going to get more hits going forward. And on top of that, if you look at just his batted ball metrics in general, even for the full season, he was hitting the ball harder than he had ever uh, with a career high hard hit rate over 47.5%, a barrel rate above 12%, which is really good. And that was much higher than anything we had seen before. So I think going forward, if he can maintain those batted ball metrics, he should continue to hit for power. And if the shift restrictions stay, which they will, then his batting average on balls in play should continue to be high or at least higher than it was in the past, which should allow his batting average to not hurt your team. And I I think his full season numbers are something that we can expect for next year. And his projections from Steamer are pretty similar to what his full season numbers were. I think they're projecting him for 250 and 22 home runs next year, which is very solid production, especially for a guy going this late in drafts. He's going well past pick 250. And that's, that's a super easy price for me to take with, what he's currently projected uh, via steamer, but he was pretty unlucky in the first half in terms of BABIP and in terms of expected batting average and expected slug based on how hard he was hitting the ball. So I think going forward, we might even be able to expect him to hit 270 with 25 or more home runs, which that's incredible production if you're drafting him past pick 250. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up BABIP because... I mean that that's always kind of been the issue with with Kepler at least the last three seasons since 2019, right? He's he's kind of one of those guys who was the uh, quintessential example of like the shift basically kind of destroying his his offense. And <laughs> I, I remember at the beginning of the season last year when like basically all the, the the shift got outlawed, 
and we were kind of expecting, at least Twins fans, uh, when I say we, uh, were expecting, you know, that BABIP to basically shoot up, and it didn't. And so it felt kind of like, oh, you know, Kepler is Kepler is who he is, right? Like, it doesn't matter if the shift, uh, if the shift goes away, he's still kind of uh, hitting right to batters and yada, yada, yada. And I think that was a little bit real. You know, his BABIP in the first half was 213, just absolutely yeah. atrocious. And then the second half was 351, which... You know, I, I think there's there's maybe something you said where, like, yeah, maybe he did figure something out um, and was able to figure out a way to, you know, kind of get through the holes in, in the in the defense a little bit easier. Uh, obviously, I'm still skeptical because I've seen this for the last four years as a fan, and um, I'd, I'd love to see Kepler have, have a good year. And, you know, if, if you look at those season numbers, like, I, and, and I mean, I host a Twins podcast, too, so I'm, you know, hyper aware of Kepler. And that second half of the season for Kepler, like he was legitimately on fire. Uh, so it, it, I like that you point him out because it's a lot. Of th- I think a lot of people miss that where it's here's this guy who's hitting, you know, basically sixth in the lineup. He's not exactly like you know turning the world on storm, but for the Twins at least, he was really really good for the last two months of the season. So yeah, I'm really hoping he he kind of continues this. You know those those numbers you mentioned, like being able to bat 260, 270 with 25 plus homers. I think. As a fantasy asset, that's really solid from like an outfield four guy, maybe an outfield three, definitely mm-hmm. a guy who saw at, at, at Util. Um, uh, you know, if, if if that can continue, then yeah, I'm all for Kepler being uh, a guy that you should definitely look at in fantasy, especially you know, like you mentioned with with that low of an ADP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he should have an everyday role in Minnesota, though I know oh, he's yeah. probably better against righties than he is against lefties, but the outfield isn't super deep there, and obviously you got the constantly injured Byron Buxton and Kirilov yep. as well, um, mm-hmm. and a bunch of young players trying to take over that role from him, so I, I feel like he should be in the middle of that order playing every single day, and even if he doesn't live up to the heights that he reached in the second half, he will be able to just rack up the counting stats and he should at the very least provide you a pretty comfortable floor with the possibility of a a ceiling that makes you look like a really smart fantasy manager. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say let's not expect the 300 average from Kepler, but yeah, 260, 270, that would be, that'd be pretty beautiful. Yeah. For me, Kepler's someone that you draft like, you said his ADP is post 250. It's around 287 right now. And he's someone that you draft as a fifth, maybe even sixth outfield option. I mean, I know by the first 250 picks, I want to have at least five outfielders already. So Mm -hmm. by the time you get to there and you're taking a shot on Kepler, you're either drafting him as your outfield five, outfield six. Maybe if you really slacked in the draft, maybe he's your outfield four going into that spot. But if he has a chance to perform at an outfield three level and it's just a guy you're taking a shot on at the end of the draft, why not? Why not gamble on this amazing second half surge that he had when you see the numbers he put up and you can see what he's been doing and what he's able to do? Why not take a gamble on that guy? That's like the perfect target for a late outfielder for those end spots, you know? Yeah, it's uh, not a guy that you have to rely on that's going to keep your team together, but if you do have injuries or it's, he does have a full season breakout, it's a guy that you're really happy to have on your team all year. Without a doubt. I feel like everyone always goes, oh, you know, Max Kepler looks good. Let's grab him. And then he always just does the same thing, kind of stinks, and then turns it on. We're like, hey, how about Max Kepler? <laughs> but I like Kepler overall. I think he'll find some spots on some of my teams this year in those deep, deep rounds for a late outfielder. But finally, we are going to move to 
one of our favorite segments. It's usually comparing players in one way or another on who'd you rather. But in this case, you wrote about four different players. And granted, they all play different positions for the most part. Casas first base, Berger and Cabrian Hayes happen to be third baseman and Kepler an outfielder. But we're going to make you pick your favorite. So out of these four players, which one are you more likely to target in drafts this season? Who do you think you'll have the most shares of in 2024? It, it's it's a difficult choice, especially because the two third basemen that I'm enamored by are drafted right next to each other. So yep. it's not like I can let ADP make the decision for me. Uh, so I have a feeling I'll be leaning Kepler just because he's going so late. And if many other people aren't as high on him as I am, then I should he should be available for me super late in drafts as a, as a flyer or a guy that I can, like you said, count on as a bench piece or a fifth outfielder. But it's probably going to be him just because his ADP is much later, giving me for, more flexibility to make sure I get him in drafts. But if I had to decide on a guy where I'm not just going by ADP, I have a feeling it's going to be Hayes because he's a guy that I've liked in the past and I was sort of out on him for last year, but I'm, I'm back in now after what I saw in the second half and sort of what we've seen from other guys similar to him in that once you fix that ground ball problem, you can really just turn your whole career around. And Cabrian Hayes is still so young that I think there's a possibility that ne next year he just has the best season out of all four of these guys. That's very fair. John, do you have a favor? Who do you think you'll have the most shares of out of these four players for next season? I, I think I could probably talk myself into someone like Casas, uh, which, I mean, he's he probably has the highest ADP out of out of the four of these, I think. I think but, so, yeah. Um, but I think part yeah. of it is, I, man, I'm a sucker for stars. And so oftentimes that means I, I skimp on the positions that have more stars, so to speak. And uh, I could see myself talking myself into to Casas because he's like, not a top five first baseman, but has the opportunity to be and then kind of save money and then spend that elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, for me, I mean, genuinely, Jake, after talking to you, I'm kind of, I mean, I like both Berger and Hayes, but I'm kind of more in on Hayes now. I just, I don't know, I got a good feeling about it after the discussion we had and looking a little bit deeper because I haven't done a deep dive of him in a little while. That second half and, and those numbers, I could see how that could be a fantasy star for next season, so... I could see myself having a lot of shares of Hayes, especially with where he's going. And usually in fantasy, at least the last three seasons, and John knows this, we talk about it all the time, is I usually try to prioritize getting a third baseman pretty early because I feel like that position just has such a cliff after the first, like, six rounds, right? Like, after Bregman's off the board from last year and the year before that, you really have no good options. There's like a bunch of guys that you hope are good, but never really piece it together. Your typical Yohan Moncadas and all these other guys. So you take a shot on these guys and they're just not doing anything for you. So I was always paying a premium for third baseman last season, the year before that, the year before that. And I could just see a lot of these third basemen going in that 150 to 180 range, just exploding this season and not having to take someone like, Bregman or Arenado or pressure yourself to take Machado even though his price is lower too maybe not take someone in the top first two rounds at third base like Devers because you have someone like Berger who can maybe give you similar stats later on in the draft so yeah maybe third base is deeper than we think this season I mean we even have like Josh Young we have a lot of other guys that 
you don't know. Maybe they can explode, and we have some potential there at third base. It might be a little deeper than we think. So I'll chalk myself up for Hayes. I was originally thinking I was going to pick Casas, but I'm going to go with Hayes. I think you really talked me into him, Jake. Yeah, third base is actually way deeper now, especially with Berger and Hayes looking like second half breakouts. But I mean, even past them, you've got Noel V. Marte, you got the aforementioned Isak Paredes, yep. Candelario, yeah. even some really interesting guys like Michael Garcia, Junior Caminero, and even Matt Chapman is going pick 268. So yeah, wow. third base, I think, is surprisingly really deep now. Even Eugenio Suarez, which... John's bold pick uh-huh. of the season so far that we've we've <laughs> done is that he's going to outperform a lot of third basemen this year, which I kind of like. I like Suarez. So Suarez and Candelario, both them, they're going late in drafts and they seem good. Yeah, third base is deep. I think that's the official lesson we learned after reviewing your article is that maybe third base is something you can wait on and get some diamonds in the rough there. So Jake, oh, we yeah. appreciate having you on talking about your article, Hot Second Half Hitters Who Deserve Your Attention. Thank you so much for your time. Before you go... Is there anything you'd like to plug anywhere that people can find you? Let the people know. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to join you guys talk about baseball, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jake Crumpler. Uh, obviously, I'm a writer at Pitcher List. I also do a podcast called In the Pen with Rick Graham. We focus on relief pitchers, and I write for Baseball HQ as well as a playing time analyst. And then I have my personal podcast, which is called Free Baseball, and that one you can find on my Twitter as well. Once again, that's Jake Crumpler. Jake, once again, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Now, let's talk about all of the transactions that happened from our last podcast, which was January 5th to right now and there's not too many some bigger names off the board but the other remaining ones the Cody Bellingers the Jordan Montgomery's the Blake Snell's they still haven't signed but the first one we're going to lead off with is Shota Imanaga signing with the Cubs on a very friendly four-year 53 million dollar deal John how do you feel about Shota overall on the Cubs and did you see his introduction to the Cubs interview where he sung the song, Hey Chicago, what do you say? It was great. I loved it. Yeah, I, I like that he's already kind of, you know, making himself a little bit of a fan favorite. There, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know too much about Imanaga. I mean, frankly, I just don't know too much about, you know, most of the Japanese players. But, hey, he started the the gold medal game for the World Baseball Classic, right? He was the, uh, he was he was at least that important that they, they wanted him in that game at that position. Um I know he he doesn't have the same caliber as as Yamamoto. That I mean, that's for clear. Uh, that's pretty clear. But the thing is, you know, I, I've seen a lot of things on Twitter where it's like, oh, it feels weird for the Cubs to pick up this guy who his game doesn't really play too much for this because he has a high fly ball rate, and you know, Wrigley is just infamous for you know the wind there, just taking balls that should be outs, just out uh, you know past the fences. So yep. we'll see how it works out there. Um, the, you know, coaching staffs know what they're know what they're getting and Imanaga, right? Like, the Cubs had to do their due diligence, and they're like, hey, yeah, this guy has a pretty high fly ball rate, but how can we make that work for, for our uh, our stadium? And so, you know, the nice thing for him is that he isn't signed to be the ace of this team, right? He doesn't have that sort of pressure like Yamamoto might, where, you know, like, hey, you just gave this 25-year-old the biggest pitcher contract in, um, in baseball, and... Uh, he might not be the de facto ace, but he's definitely going to be treated like one. I think with Imanaga Naga with his contract and with the team that he's on, you know, he, he's not going to be the number one guy there. He's going to be, you know, probably the number three, number four guy there. And I think that's going to help in, in helping him in transitioning to the major leagues. Uh, plus, it can't uh, not help that, um, 
that he's got another Japanese player also with him on that team uh, as well with Seiya Suzuki. So there's got to be a little bit of familiarity there. Um, I think ultimately this is, you know, a pretty decent deal for both sides. I don't really have too much in terms of like actual analytic opinion about it, but um, you know, glad that the, the Cubs are able to get a guy and glad that Imanaga is able to, you know, pitch in the majors. Yeah, it was the first move the Cubs made this offseason after signing Craig Council as their manager. I mean, that's pretty bad. I think that you would think the signing of Council would lead to a bunch of other signings and a real ambitious offseason. And they just finally made their first move in, what, January? I mean, pretty lackluster. But his annual value is less than the next two people we're going to talk about, which is pretty wild. I think the Cubs got away with a steal here on Imanaga. I think he's going to be really good. I know Nick Pollock of Pitcher List, of course, is very excited about the Cubs having him and the fact that he's going to be very good for that team. I know he got very excited about it. He was saying on Twitter that he's everything they're going to want for that price. It's unbelievable. Like So many teams are going to be upset that they didn't grab him at that value. So yeah, Imanaga looks like he's going to be the truth. So we'll see what we get out of Imanaga. And I think he's going to be a worthwhile flyer late in the draft. So without a doubt, I think Imanaga is in a good spot and we'll see how he performs in that windy Chicago field. Next, we have Sean Manaya, who signed with the Mets on a two-year, $28 million contract. And I see a lot of people on Twitter kicking up fuss about, why are we giving this guy so much money? He didn't pitch well at all. He's a four career. Right? I kind of like this signing. I don't know. I always liked Manaya, and I always had a liking to his mechanics and his movement. And I like when he has that uptick in velocity because that's when he's good. And I'm already seeing good things out of Manaya. I'm also seeing good things out of Severino from his bullpen sessions that he was doing with, I forget what the exact thing's called. It's not driveline, but he has some sort of pitching machine that he's pitching into and it's giving all the specs back and it looks really good. But Manaya has the same thing. And I really like Manaya. I liked what he did for the Giants in the reliever role. And I like how when he started, he was pitching well. And at the end of the season, he started pitching really well. And I just like his upside. So I think this is a great signing by the Mets. Any opinion on this one, John? I mean, I hate to, you know, rain on Mets fans parades. But, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Like the, uh, the, I feel like the, the goal for this season for the Mets feels like the, the last wild card spot, right? You know, like if you guys can find your way into that, that and then you know make the playoffs like i think that'd be pretty solid like it's going to be really tough competing for the top two spots in that division and manaya feels like a pitcher for a team that is trying to finish you know third fourth in their division um and, and hope to to get a playoff spot and i will say the one thing i can think about manaya is, is last season uh he was i believe he was pitching um against the twins and they just he was supposed to be an opener and they ended up being like, nah, let's just keep him in for a little bit longer. And I think he pitched like four shutout innings against the Twins or something stupid like that. <laughs> um, and maybe it wasn't shutout innings, but it was like, it was definitely like, oh, this guy like has some stuff. So, you know, a, a, a pitcher like that who, who's able to give you like five solid innings, let's just say like every two out of three starts, not terrible. You know, for $14 million a year, for two years, $28 million, like that's not a bad pickup. And, you know, Manaya is a, he's a smart vet. Um, I don't think he's necessarily a terrible pitcher by any means. Um, and so, yeah, here, maybe it works out and maybe he ends up being like a really solid, like number three, number four guy for, for a team. And 
who's pitching more like a number two guy, and, and it all works out for the Mets. But that, that's maybe how I see it. Yeah, and to what you said, I truly agree with the Mets basically just playing to survive and maybe scrape into the playoffs. I mean, you never know. And I think we're going to be better than a lot of people think we're going to be just because our main core of offense is still there, and our rookies are only mm-hmm. going to get better, and it's a lot going right. Our rotation is lackluster, but it's honestly not bad. It's full of potential. You know, we have, of course... We have Kodai Sango, who's coming off an amazing rookie season. Then we have Manaya, Severino, Hauser, and Quintana. And honestly, those are just four guys that can just get the job done day in and day out. And if they give us mm-hmm. all, you know, besides Severino, really, if they all give us 170, 180 innings each and get us through the season with minimal problems, and then we have, you know, Tyler McGill, the backup Severino, if he ever gets hurt or anybody else gets hurt, it's not that bad of a rotation. It's not the best. There's no studs besides Sango. I really like Sango, but... There's nothing to get excited about, but I think it's steady enough to squeeze into the playoffs. We're not better than the Braves, that's for sure. Not going to try to sit here in front with that, but our lineup still contains the top two best shortstop in the game, one of the top five best first basemen in the game. We got a lot of good potential there, one of the best offensive catchers in the game. So, yeah, I like a lot of the things the Mets are doing. We're getting better defensively, and we're giving some charges, but we'll see. We'll see. You never know. Maybe we have that lucky magic. I mean, in 2015, when we made it to the World Series, our team was horrible. We were not the best team in baseball by any stretch of the imagination. Once we signed Sussman, we went crazy. But yeah, you never know what can happen in a baseball season. That's what's funny about baseball. But the next player, speaking of the Mets, we're speaking of an ex-Met, Marcus Stroman, who signed with the Yankees on a two-year, $37 million deal. This signing for the Yankees seems pretty good. I mean, Stroman is a solid pitcher when he's on the mound. He's always performed in big situations. He is always a steady contributor, someone who will go out there and perform every fifth day, giving you probably anywhere from 150 to 180 innings and giving you just good overall peripherals. So I think Stroman and the Yankees is a good signing, especially for that value. Any thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, Stroman's just very much like a high floor, low ceiling guy. Like, I loved having him on my fantasy team last season for like the first what four months right yeah yep yep uh and then he got injured and then he was awful and then it was like ah that's too bad (laughs) Uh, there he goes (laughs) yeah i wish there was more consistency throughout the entire season and you know of course he's a guy who isn't going to necessarily wow you with his stuff but he's dependable he's very reliable sort of guy um i think for the yankees for how much they're spending on on him uh you know i think it it makes a lot of sense money wise. Um it and he's not gonna be worse than I mean, who is the number five guy in their team? Frankie Montas, right? Something no, like no, that? he signed with the Reds. Clark Schmidt's the technical fifth guy. Ah, uh, that's right. That's right. Montas was technically their fifth guy last season, yes. but he ended up being a reliever. Exactly. Uh that's right. So it's like, but that's like, are you are you telling me Marcus Stroman is like worse than Frankie Montas? No. No, right. Is he is he around the same as Clark Schmidt? Eh, probably. That seems about right. Uh, this team already has Garrett Cole, uh, hopefully a healthy Carlos Rodon. Um, Nestor Cortez Jr. lost his way last season, but yep. he could get back to being an all-star player like he was two seasons ago. Like, they don't need Stroman to be a number three guy. He is he is firmly their number five guy on that on that roster, and so, eh, yeah, I think I think it's a it's not a bad pickup for the for the Yankees. Yeah, and when you frame it like that, where he's the fourth or fifth starter on that team, that's lovely. I mean, that's an excellent SP four SP five on your team. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the better options you can have, right? Like that's a really good solid floor guy pitching 
at the end of the rotation. So great signing from the Yankees. I think that's a really necessary upgrade piece for the rotation. Moving on to someone who is joining a rotation, which is crazy because he was a reliever, Jordan Hicks, who signed with the Giants on a four-year, $44 million deal. I mean, just a little bit less than what Shota Imanaga got. So pretty wild that they're going to stretch him to be a regular starter. I mean, that's just, I don't know. When is his arm going to fall off? I project 60 innings, but we'll see. I mean, I don't know. It's crazy because Hicks definitely has potential. We've seen what he can do as a reliever. We've seen the flashy fastball and how dominant he could be at times, but also he could be very wild. And I don't know how that's going to look as a starter over the whole season. So what do you think about this one, John? Yeah, it feels weird. I I don't know why he's so insistent about becoming a starter. Yeah. Um, Because he signed this four-year deal. It's not like I mean, I guess maybe he's hoping, hey, over the next four seasons, I like turn out to be a pretty decent starter and end up getting a lot more money than I would have as a reliever. You know, that that makes some sense. But like you said, you know, the, the problem with the the problem with Hicks is he's so wild, right? Eleven percent walk rate last season. Yes, that also came with a twenty percent strikeout rate. Yep. Um, but as a starter, like he's not going to be hurling these like hundred mile an hour sinkers anymore. Right. right. Oh yeah, no, happen. that's not happening. You know, they're going to be, you know, more than 97, 96. Like, he's going to have to figure out a way to use his other pitches well. And I'm just looking at his repertoire and pitch list, right? 64% sinker. That's that's coming down. Yep, um, it has to. Because he's not, he's not throwing them at, not, at 100 miles an hour anymore. He's throwing them at 97, 96. Yeah, after like, the third inning, it's going to dip down to, like, 95. So, like... Right. He's got a slider. It's not bad, I guess. He's going to have to throw that. He's got a four-seamer. That that usage is going to probably go up a little bit. But again, he's not tagging that for 100 miles an hour every single game. Right. Like, it just feels weird for why this he's insisting to becoming a reliever. Like, if it's a money thing, I get it, right? You, you want to you wanna make sure you're, you're earning for yourself the most you can. But I just don't see the track record for why the Giants specifically, right, would want to invest four years into a guy who frankly doesn't have the track record of being a starter yep. and they've already they've already come out and said well he's going to be a starter right like it's going to be hard to walk back from that a little bit unless he just absolutely has some horrific blow-ups right um so yeah this is a kind of a weird thing just to say right in january um but you know it's what he wanted on the contract and uh the giants were willing to give that to him yeah i mean for me jordan hicks as a starter is just going to be a wild experience and the one thing I can say, though, is we can trust the Giants, right? I mean, they have really done some great things with pitchers in general in the past few seasons. So mm-hmm. I kind of trust their process. And we have another Giant to talk about later on as well. And you just think that there's something we don't know when they do these signings because they did sign people like Alex Cobb and Anthony DiSclefani, and they all pitched really well on the Giants. Same with Sean Manaya and all these other guys mm-hmm. that Ross Stripling. It's just all these guys that turned pretty good. They still have players like Logan Webb, who's a fantastic pitcher. So I think they know what they're doing. And obviously they are smarter than us in general, but if they're giving him this kind of money, they have to have seen something that shows that he can do it. Right. So I'm going to trust the process there. Maybe take a flyer on him late in drafts, but I just don't see it in my personal opinion. I don't see it, but we'll have to wait and see. Speaking of, Relievers gone starter. Another one, Yariel Rodriguez signed with the Blue Jays on a four-year, $32 million deal. Not going to go too in-depth on that one. Luke Rayleigh was traded to the Mariners for Jose Caballero. 
good pickup from the Mariners. Luke Raley is a sneaky good option. The Rays get Jose Caballero. I like that trade for the Mariners. I think Luke Raley is going to be a good piece for them. And then moving into the other giant we were speaking of, it was actually a trade with the Mariners. Robbie Ray was traded from the Mariners to the Giants for Mitch Hanniger and Anthony DiScalfani. Now, this is a reunion, obviously, with Mitch Hanniger to the Mariners. So that'll be cool. I love Mitch Hanniger. I love him on the Mariners. And he won me a season, technically. Him and Raphael Devers won me my first ever home league championship with their performance in the playoffs. So big shout out to Mitch Hanniger. Love that guy. Will always have a piece of my heart. So shout out to Mitch. And hopefully he can be good this season. But the more interesting part here is Robbie Ray. And Robbie Ray's going to the Giants. And this is another one where he was obviously injured last season. And this is one season after he won the Cy Young. And that's what's crazy is we had Robbie Ray winning the Cy Young. Then he had like a meh kind of year. Then he got injured. And then the Giants acquired him. And it's crazy because the Mariners giving up on him this early is pretty nuts. So is it the Mariners just trying to cut costs and get rid of something that they know is damaged? Or is it the Giants seeing something and going, hey... We can get him on the cheap, and I think he's going to be great. I see something how to improve him. So I think that's going to be interesting to follow throughout the season if Robbie Ray returns to form and can be someone that's really good again. Do you think that that's the case, or do you think it's damaged goods? Uh, I mean, I I love Robbie Ray. Right, like He, he was so much fun that Cy Young season, uh, and then was really hoping he'd do well in, in Seattle and just... Just, yeah, never, never clicked. It was uh, a good landing spot for him. I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like he didn't have a ton of pressure at, at that spot. Um, it was a bunch of pitchers who, you know, throw fastballs, and it's just kind of a fun thing, right? That that whole team. Uh, I I do think it's it's kind of weird because he has three years left on his deal, and then um, and then the mid and then the Mariners get Haniger and Descofani, who I think are both on the last season of their contracts. I think so like too. So it's definitely this, this weird Mariners thing where they're just trying to cut costs this entire season. And like, I, I just think it's, it's just the Mariners being weird. Um, and like, just trying to, trying to get rid of all the, the ad, like kind of what they would consider as damaged goods, right? Guys who, who don't, they don't think are going to contribute to their team in three to five years and just trying to get off them and, and try to, you know, save some money while they can. Right. Uh, that's what it feels like to me. Now, granted, Robbie Wright is still out till probably midseason, right? Yep. So he's probably going to pitch at most for the for the Giants, probably two season, two and a half seasons. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth it for them to take this flyer, right? There, there's no reason for them not to do this. Like, it, it's not like Haniger and Descofani were indispensable guys on their on their team. So, right. Right. Um. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth a worth a pickup for for the for the for the Giants. They also sent over cash to the Mariners, so clearly they were willing to kind of eat a little bit of the money. Yeah. And, um, yeah, if it if it works out, great. If it doesn't, I mean, they didn't really give up that much to uh, to trade for him. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's going to be a real tell when he comes back. If he looks great, then I think the Giants got away with absolute robbery. But we'll see because you never know. He could just be damaged goods at this point and just a washed cost. But the final move that we have to talk about is a one-year deal by the deferrals. I mean, the Dodgers. Teoscar Hernandez signed with the Dodgers on a one-year $23.5 million deal. They actually deferred only $3 million of it being paid this season, and the rest of it's deferred for a final year. So actually insane that the Dodgers just keep deferring people for their salaries. So Teoscar Mm -hmm. Hernandez, one year with the Dodgers. 
I mean, that just seems like the hot spot to go to, right? I mean, that's the popular place. So, hey, Teoscar Hernandez, great landing spot. I think he's going to shoot up draft boards a bit now in this new location. And I think the crazy part about this is in a dynasty league, I just traded him away. Ooh. I do like who I got. I got Yiner Diaz as my catcher. I needed a catcher badly because Varsho is about to lose eligibility. Sure. Yeah. But I lost to Oscar, who's now on the Dodgers. I know it's only one year, but man, that is not good timing for me. So <laughs> how do you feel about Teoscar on the deferrals? I mean, the Dodgers. Yeah. I mean, I think when he, when he got sent to Seattle last year, I was like kind of annoyed. But at the same time, I was like, hey, this guy's got enough power. He can deal with the, he can deal with two mobile park. Um, and he kind of did. He had two, 26 homers last season compared to 25 the season before in Toronto. So it wasn't like he was uh, awful in terms of the power department. The really big issue with, with Teoscar was just, he just kept striking out. Um, he had that wonderful season in 2021 where he only had a 25% strikeout rate. Um, and he had a 33% hard contact rate. You know, only uh, one of the lower swinging strike percentages of his season, of his career. And then, yeah, just the past couple of seasons, that strikeout rate has climbed. I'm kind of hoping that the Dodgers are able to, you know, figure some way to, to fix his swing. You know, they're obviously one of the smartest organizations out there. And so being able to figure something out with maybe just cutting down that strikeout rate, if that can go down, man, Teatro is going to be deadly in that offense. But um, I am a little bit happy that he is leaving um, Seattle just, just to get a higher average out of out of that player. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. I think Teoscar is going to have a great season for the Dodgers. I mean, how can you not have a great season in that lineup? So it's an interesting signing, and I think that it's going to play well for Teoscar. But that wraps up all of the transactions since our last podcast, and that wraps up this episode of This Week in Fantasy Baseball. Before you go, make sure you follow us on Twitter or X at ThisWeekPL and send us your comments and questions to our email at ThisWeekPLPod at gmail.com. We're just starting to ramp up the fantasy baseball content, so make sure you send your emails and tweets to us so we can cover any questions that you might have. You can find John on Twitter or X at TheJohnKuh, that's T-H-E-J-O-H-N-K-E. And you can follow myself on Twitter or X at Regicidal, that's R-E-G-I-C-I-D-A-L. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Pitcherless Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts on, and leave us a five-star review if you enjoy listening to the show. Lastly, sign up for PitcherList Plus. By doing so, you can join us in the PitcherList Discord and get advice from all of the fantasy experts and writers over there. But that's all for this week. We will be back in two weeks with another episode of This Week in Fantasy Baseball. For John, I'm Lee, and we'll see you in the next one. Later, everyone. Later, everyone.